Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. From KQED. From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. The soil of Ukraine is the stuff of empires and legends. The rich earth there makes the country one of the great agricultural regions of the world, especially for wheat. Many low-income countries depend on that Ukrainian wheat, and those exports are imperiled by the Russian invasion. Already, wheat prices are now 21% higher than last month. So today, we look at the prospect of a worsening global food crisis as yet another ripple effect of the terrible war. Stay with us as we talk with food system experts and a Ukrainian agricultural specialist working with farmers right now in the country. That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Today, we're looking at the important role Ukraine plays in the global food supply, the impacts the Russian invasion is having on production, and what's being done to prevent a deepening global hunger crisis. Many countries across the Middle East and Africa specifically depend on wheat from the region, and the war comes at a time when the global food system was already staggering under the weight of rising prices, shipping problems, and the difficulties of the pandemic. One expert said the Russian invasion, quote, compounded a catastrophe on top of a catastrophe. Today, we're hoping to help us all understand the nature of the crisis and what can be done to head off the worst. Let me first introduce Beth Bechtel. She's the deputy director general of the FAO, a U.N. agency devoted to eliminating global hunger. Welcome to the show, Beth. Thanks very much for having me. So, Beth, a word I've read around this crisis a lot is unprecedented. Why is that? Well, I I think that's um, certainly not an overstatement in this particular situation. There's really two very serious concerns here that I think we all are recognizing. The first is really the dire humanitarian situation that's taking place. And I think we all have to be mindful here at the beginning of this very discussion to keep front of mind what the Ukrainian people really are facing. It's incredibly difficult to even predict the evolution of this conflict and its effects. We're watching, you know, every news story that we can to get the latest information about what the people are facing, but where that goes tomorrow, next week, next month, or or next year um, is incredibly challenging to, to, um, to identify. And, you know, we have seen that there's already been some very serious food hunger related issues in the eastern part of Ukraine for well over eight or nine years. So it's a country that had already been exposed to some amount of deteriorating market and agricultural infrastructure. But now with cities being encircled, the bombings that are taking place, people are isolated and we are really seeing severe shortages of food, water, water and energy um, supplies. So mm-hmm. we are finding ourselves with the Ukrainian people falling deeper into emergency levels of hunger and malnutrition. What's the other serious concern that you mentioned? We want to, as you said, we do want to make sure that we center the experience of the Ukrainian people who are suffering so much. 
What's the wider impact? Yeah. So the second is that we are really concerned about the implications of the war, not only on regional agricultural production, but as you've mentioned in the introduction to today's show, on global crop production, on markets, on trade, and ultimately food insecurity in many other countries. I know we'll talk more over the course of our time together uh, today, but both Ukraine and Russia are key suppliers to so many other countries in the world that are highly dependent on imported commodities and also fertilizers. They are leading exporters of wheat, lead exporters of barley, of maize, of rapeseed, sunflower seeds and oils and other oil seeds. One of the areas that I think we watch most closely um, from from FAO's vantage point is really the the opportunity for Ukrainian farmers to to get into the fields and to complete the Mm. seasonality and the crop cycles that that are part of their production system. So Ukraine's farmers planted their winter wheat last fall. And so harvest would normally begin in June of this um, coming summer and go Mm -hmm. through August. Planting of vegetables should have taken place around mid-March, starting now through mid-May, with harvest coming later in the summer. And other spring grains, very important to the production uh, cycle, would be planted between February and May. So our point here really is that While we're struggling to find, I think, the necessary food supplies um, and and other necessary um, humanitarian supplies, we are moving very quickly into a cycle where the food that could be produced for the Ukrainians, the Russians, the people in the region is at risk. Um, If we aren't able to keep fields open, if labor isn't available, if markets aren't uh, still functioning properly, if ports are shut down, we run the risk of losing another entire production cycle and that not only will affect uh, the people in the uh, the people in the region but will also spread to so many other parts of the world where because they are so dependent on those imports um, from this very important production region we're going to see hunger and food insecurity numbers rise elsewhere yeah And we know that all those factors you just mentioned, the labor, the ports, the field safety and availability, all those things have deteriorated. So unless something changes quickly, we're going to be experiencing some of those effects. One of the things that I wanted to ask you was if the crisis primarily affects wheat because of what this region produces, though, obviously, there's a lot of different products produced there. How much can other staple crops be substituted in from other places to keep that food supply stable around the world? Well, you know, that's that's I think a, a topic that we'll we'll cover a little bit more um, through the conversation, but but certainly um, there there is there is an opportunity for some shifting because we do know that there are other major producers of these staple crops um, around the world. But but we are in a, a period of time where global stocks are already tight. Prices are significantly high for all of these major products. Um, as well as energy. I think that's another very important component of this story is the dependence that so many producers have all around the world on fertilizer, natural gas, other kinds of energy-driven inputs that come from this particular region as well. So that means, again, the ripple effects to the U.S. farmer, Canadian farmers, South American farmers, and beyond, um, while maybe seeming very distant uh, from this particular region and the conflict itself, 
will be definitely impacted. So we are going to have to see market shifts um, and market patterns. And one of the things that we are calling upon national governments to make sure that they do uh, do not uh, move to put new export restrictions or other kinds of of requirements uh, on on their on their markets is something that's really important to emphasize because if all of a sudden we start seeing export markets being closed and restrictions being put in place and the limitation of the free flow of, of products being changed we're going to really I think deepen the potential for for even more um, insecurity and and more um, complications going forward. Beth Bechtel, Deputy Director General of the FAO UN Agency Devoted to Eliminating Global Hunger. I know you're extremely busy during this time, and we so appreciate that you were able to join us and to be able to give us FAO's important perspective. Thank you so much. Thanks very much for having us. Want to introduce our other panelists today to talk about this widening crisis. First up, we've got Joseph uh, Glauber, Senior Research Fellow at the International Food Policy Research Institute and former Chief Economist of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. Welcome, Joseph. Thanks very much. We're also joined by Amanda Little, Professor at Vanderbilt, columnist at Bloomberg Opinion and author of The Fate of Food, What We'll Eat in a Bigger, Hotter, Smarter World. Welcome, Amanda. Thanks, Alexis. And finally, we have Scott Reynolds Nelson, professor of history at the University of Georgia and author of Oceans of Grain, How American Wheat Remade the World. Welcome, Scott. Thanks so much for having me. Joseph, let's start with you. Hearing about this crisis of production, one of my questions is, you know, the U.S. and Canada are both big wheat producing regions as well. How much slack is there in our system? Like, could we put more wheat into the world market to stabilize supplies? Well, it's a great question. I think the you know you have to remember that most of the wheat grown in the uh, in the U.S. is fall planted wheat. So if you're looking at the big wheat belts in Kansas and and elsewhere, particularly in the southern part of the U.S., those are uh, you know that wheat is planted in the fall, harvested in June, July, um, and so obviously that was planted before this crisis and before mm-hmm. we saw the big price increases. So you really ha- are looking at at the response in North America, at least coming from Canada, which is predominantly spring planted wheat, and the northern plains of the U.S. So the the Dakotas, Minnesota, Montana, a little bit in Washington and Idaho, and one is that that area, at least in the U.S., has seen wheat area decline over the years, uh, primarily because corn and soybeans have become more attractive crops, and we have varieties now that grow up in those that grow in those regions. And I think one of the difficulties facing this current situation is that corn and soybean prices are are also at record levels. Um, And so uh, a producer is still gonna look at their planning decision and see that corn prices and soybean prices look awfully attractive. And particularly for a crop like soybeans, which requires less fertilizer than uh, wheat or corn. Canada, very similar. They, they, uh, the crop there that's really increased in importance is canola, which is an uh, oilseed, and oilseed prices are extremely high. So I, I think that the, you know we will probably see a little bit more area come in uh, into wheat, but I wouldn't expect very much to make a very big dent into the uh, uh, the current uh, crisis. Yeah. 
Amanda Little, you focused a lot on climate's impacts on food production. And one of the factors that's contributing to the crisis right now is what happened to Chinese wheat crops, which were damaged by by flooding. How much do we know about, you know, if that was linked to climate and what it says about the, the food system going forward? Well, yeah, drought, heat, flooding. Um, There's so many pressures that climate has been placing on food producers globally. And I think we need to be clear at the start of this conversation that even if Russia's war against Ukraine is resolved soon and their exports continue to flow, the climate impacts on food production and supply chain disruptions will become increasingly severe in the years and decades ahead. And the most recent IP International Panel on Climate Change report released a couple of weeks ago, um, showed that these hotter, drier, wetter, more volatile growing conditions are hobbling food systems globally already. And as much as 30% of the world's currently productive farm and pasture land will no longer support food production by the end of this century if current trends continue. We're talking about the worsening global food crisis exacerbated by Russia's invasion of Ukraine. We're joined by Amanda Little, a professor at Vanderbilt University, columnist at Bloomberg Opinion, and author of The Fate of Food, What We'll Eat in a Bigger, Hotter, Smarter World, Joseph Glauber, Senior Research Fellow at the International Food Policy Research Institute and former Chief Economist of the U.S. Department of Agriculture. And after the break, we're going to hear from Scott Reynolds Nelson, a professor of history at the University of Georgia and author of Oceans of Grain, How American Wheat Remade the World. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more Forum after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about how the war in Ukraine is exacerbating the global food crisis. Wanted to uh, introduce you to Scott Reynolds Nelson. Scott, um, you have written a lot about the history of this particular region of the world and, and wheat production generally. So can you tell us for our listeners who are not familiar with the history of this region of the world as an agricultural region, um, why is it so significant? Um, thanks. It's This is the Goldilocks zone. This is the place, the breadbasket really of the world going all the way back to the Roman Empire, uh, the Greek empires before it, the Byzantine Empire and the Ottoman Empire. The whole region from the Straits of Gibraltar to the Straits of Hormuz are um, we're, we're centered in this empire and much of the food that fed this empire came from the Black Sea, came from this area that we now call Ukraine. Mm-hmm. And do you think think that this region 
and its history is sort of factoring into like the the broader geopolitical calculations <laughs> as it has in the past? Absolutely. Uh, I think uh, it's telling that Putin announces the invasion of Ukraine or the, or the police action, as he calls it in, in Ukraine, with behind him the flag of uh, the, the Russia now, which is the double-headed eagle of the old empire. He understands that uh, Russia needs Ukraine to be a world power. Uh, Catherine the Great understood that when she invaded this region in the 1760s. Um, and uh, Lenin understood it when he take, took this tiny uh, Russian state and turned it into the USSR, the Union of Soviet Socialist Republics, by uh, bringing Ukraine in. Ukraine is absolutely vital to the expansion of what we now call the uh, what the Russian Empire and the Soviet Union in uh, the 19th, 18th, 19th, and 20th centuries. Joseph Glauber, uh, former chief economist of the U.S. Department of uh, Agriculture, I want you to walk through maybe a little bit of how trade gets sort of disrupted here, right? I mean, we heard uh, at the top from our FAO representative about Ukrainian farmers being unable to get to it into their fields or maybe not having labor or uh, machine availability. But the U.S. has also sh- sanctioned Russia and trade in the area is sort of broken down. Maybe you could walk through what a disruption like this looks like? Well, I, I think uh, Beth uh, at the open, in her opening comments talked about the fact that, that already just prior to the, the actual invasion, we had stock levels at very low levels because of droughts last year uh, in the U.S. And, and Canada, droughts in, in Brazil, um, and droughts across the Mideast. Um, and the fact that we've had strong demand from China uh, over the last 18 months uh, as, uh, for, for a variety of reasons, they've imported a lot of, of feedstuffs. And so stock levels have been drawn down, prices were close to record levels. And then on top of that, you have, have Ukraine, uh, this, this war in Ukraine. And, and there, I think you have to look at what the importance of wheat is. I mean, uh, this region now provides about 30% of the uh, wheat that's exported in the world. Um, and, and for other grains, it's, it's significant as well. Corn and barley, about 20%. Sunflower oil between Russia and Ukraine combined, over 75% of the world market. So all of a sudden, you, you stop ships flowing out of the Black Sea with grain. Um, you have a lot of people scrambling for supplies. And prim- primarily, the big markets are in North Africa. Um, those countries consume a lot of wheat. Uh, you know, uh, per capita consumption, twice of what we consume here in the U.S. So very important part of their diet. They import most of that wheat. A country like Egypt may import as much as 70 percent of its wheat mm-hmm. needs. And most of that's being sourced from um, uh, the Black Sea. So either Ukraine or Russia. And so as those countries start looking for other suppliers, you know, they start looking at, at places like the U.S. or Argentina or Australia or the EU. And again, uh, what we're what we're seeing is, uh, you know, those stocks in those exporting countries will likely be drawn down to the degree that production can respond to that. Uh, I think that will be will will be a big help, but that's likely not to come until the end of the year. Yeah, Amanda, 
You look at the countries that are likely to be most affected by decline of wheat exports. You know, uh, the list I've got at least is Armenia, Mongolia, Kazakhstan, Eritrea, Turkey, Egypt, Bangladesh, Iran, and I'm, I'm sure there are others, but those are, import a lot of their their wheat from this region. Could there be major instability within these countries or in the broader region as we see these food prices go up? Yeah, and I think Beth um, would have great insights into this, but there's no question that food security organizations are already hard pressed to deal with spreading hunger. We've heard uh, World Food Program Director David Beasley making very strong statements about how expanding shortages will be hell on earth. Well, he'll have to take food from the hungry to feed the starving. Um, and there's no question that the um, you know, the the countries that are most vulnerable are, are those already teetering on the edge of famine, famine and those that re- rely heavily on imports from the Ukraine and Russia. I, my, the numbers I've seen is that worldwide, 283 million people are already acutely food insecure. 45 million are on the edge of famine. Um, and that famine-stricken countries such as Yemen stand to suffer most. Um, from dwindling Ukrainian food exports. Um, But Egypt, Turkey, Bangladesh, which import billions of dollars uh, of Ukrainian wheat are also very vulnerable. We're talking about how Russia's invasion of Ukraine is exacerbating the global food crisis with Amanda Little, a professor at Vanderbilt and author of The Fate of Food, What We'll Eat in a Bigger, Hotter, Smarter World. Joseph Glauber, senior research fellow at the International Food Policy Research Institute, former chief economist at the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and Scott Reynolds-Nelson, a professor of history at the University of Georgia and author of Oceans of Grain, How American Wheat remade the world. We would like to hear from you. What are your concerns about the food crisis that the war in Ukraine might cause? Are you able and willing to tolerate a rise in the price of food caused by this war? And what are your questions about how the war in Ukraine will affect uh, food supplies around the world? You can give us a call, 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. The email is forum at kqed.org. And, of course, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, we're KQED Forum. Want to add in a uh, guest that I feel extremely lucky to have, Bodan Homiak. He's an agricultural consultant. He's based in Kiev in Ukraine, and he is there right now. Thank you so much for making time to join us. Thank you. Glad to be here. Yeah. So... What's happening right now with farms and, and farmers in Ukraine? Are they able to get ready for this year's planting? Uh, spring planting, well, that is. Spring planting. Uh, some of the farmers I know have basically said no to this season. Uh, the reason why they've said no is they've taken their financial resources and put them towards uh, buying uh, uh, uh bullet vests, uh, bulletproof vests, Mm -hmm. uh, other kinds of defensive gear, uh, buying munitions, uh, those kinds of things. And they're, they're not, they're not going to farm this year. So that, that's two, two groups of farms, one group in uh, northwest Ukraine, around Zhitomir, which is just west of Kiev, that they have about 14,000 hectares, and another group of farms in Odessa, also with about the same uh, amount of land. And they've basically all gone and joined either the army, uh, the territorial defense forces, 
and their families and their resources are being put towards supporting the war effort. Mm -hmm. But I think that that's not going to be the case with all farmers. Uh, and some of the farmers that I'm talking to, uh, one of the farmers that I'm talking to has, it's an American farm called Freedom Farms, and they're in, in Kherson, which is one of the occupied areas. It's a totally irrigated farm with 40,000 hectares. They, they, they have about a third of their land in, in winter wheat. But one of the issues that Beth raised and, and others have raised is the, is the issue of fertilizer. Mm. Uh, they can afford the fertilizer, but they can't get it because the, the distribution and, and supply system has been disrupted. So their winter wheat crop, even though it's under irrigation, will not be uh, as robust. It will not be as productive as it could be because this is the time when they should be adding fertilizer to their to their winter wheat. Yeah. And the winter wheat that's all across Ukraine, outside of the conflict areas, uh, is facing that same kind of issue. There's just not enough fertilizer to go around. And typically in, in March, is March, first week of April would be the end of that, when you would add, add fertilizer, depending upon how the crop comes through the winter. Mm -hmm. Since we had a mild winter, the winter wheat uh, that was planted on time last fall is coming through very well, but there's not going to be, it's not going to be a very high yielding wheat. So in, in 21, uh, the average Ukrainian yield was about 4.6 4 uh, tons per hectare. I would expect that this year, uh, the winter wheat that, that will come through will be at about three tons. So that's going to be, that's, that's going to be about a third mm. loss. And add on top of that, that about 15 to 20%, depending on if we, if the war just stopped today, 15 to 20% will not be harvested at all because it'll be in fields that potentially have ordnance in them, mm. mines, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. So it's, it's not a, it's not a good situation. And then when we, when we look forward to spring planting, uh, that's probably going to be even, even worse because typically uh, farms here, when they, when they do their spring planting, and, and I would expect that given the, uh, given the difficulties, the crops that people will probably cut back on corn and increase their soybean and uh, maybe, maybe, uh, maybe sunflower. Uh, and if there is no fertilizer, they'll probably add a lot more spring barley and spring wheat. Mm. But those will be very low producing uh, hectares. Yeah, but so the situation us, is not going to be good. Yeah, can you tell us a little bit about the people who are doing this farming, and uh, obviously they're supporting the war effort. But how do how do they feel about this war and what's happened? <laughs> well, you know, frankly speaking, uh, you know, we uh, here in Ukraine, irrespective of, of uh, nationality, Ukrainians, Bulgarians, Russians. Um, so some people were uh, okay with Russia. Many people were sort of neutral and some people were really against Russia. One of the things that this war has done is it's really uh, united people against Russia. And uh, most, of, most of the people that I work with are ethnic Russians, but they're, 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 they're much more rapidly anti-Russian than I am <laughs> because you know, they really feel feel betrayed. We don't, we have still, 
you know, the explanations about Nazis and all these other things, they're, they're very, you know, they're, they're drawn out of thin air and they don't, they don't have any, any substance. So mm -hmm. it's, people here feel that whatever it takes uh, and we're getting them out of our country and we will, if they're here, they're, they're subject to, uh, hate to use the word liquidation. So you have, as I understand it, Canadian citizenship, yet you're still there. You're still in, you know, a, a war zone. Why are you staying? Uh, I'm sorry, I didn't quite hear oh, the question. Oh, yeah. Why are you Could staying? You if you've got, if you could leave, why are you staying? Uh, could you please repeat the question? Oh, sure. Yeah, sorry. I hope the line is uh, staying with us here. I was just saying, you, you're there in Ukraine in a war zone, but you have Canadian citizenship, as I understand it. So why not leave and get to safety? Um, bad connection, but I'll try and uh, hypothesize that the question relates to uh, why, I will go, why I will not leave uh, as being a Canadian, um, yeah, you know, so uh, there, some of the people that I work with are Americans. Uh, they haven't left as well. Um, and all of us, whether we're American, Canadians, or uh, other nationalities that have stayed, we're staying for a number of reasons. The first reason is, is that we're committed to staying here for the long run. Uh, Myself, I've been living here permanently since 95, and I started working uh, on, on technical assistance issues here back in 1990 when the Soviet Union was still alive. So I have a very you know, strong commitment. Uh, my family background is, is all Ukrainian. Uh, and I, I came here for the reason that we're trying to avoid right now. One of the reasons, the only actually the main reason why I came here, the reason why I even started working in agriculture was I was uh, horrendously upset by uh, images out of Biafra when I was very young and looking at uh, uh, starving people just uh, made me sick. So when I came here uh, in the 80s on tourist trips and to visit my family here, I saw the level of agricultural production and I compared it to what the way I farmed and the way Canadian farmers farmed. And it was very clear that production here could increase significantly. In the, in the time that I've been here, uh, agricultural output has grown roughly by about 40%. And that 40% that increase in production has taken place even though about 4 million hectares uh, are farmed are not farmed that were farmed during the Soviet period. And it doesn't consider that the, that the land in Crimea and in the occupied Donbass wasn't, uh, didn't count towards that. So that's a tremendous increase, but in, in my estimate and in the estimate of some of my colleagues, that's only about half of the increase that could be done. So when Ukraine, um, when Ukraine stops production, or lowers production. And when it stops developing its productive capacity, 
that has a huge impact on the world as, as, as we've already been talking about. But I would, I would refer back to some of the comments that Amanda uh, has made regarding the energy and uh, fossil fuel intensi intensity of, of uh, contemporary agriculture. One of, one of the issues that I'm trying to deal with is to uh, develop programs uh, and behavioral patterns, which would be more regenerative and supportive of an agricultural methodology, which is not as energy intensive and particularly fertilizer intensive. So that in fact was what I was working on uh, <laughs> before this war started. Before all this, yeah. Thank you so much. We've been talking about the war in Ukraine, Russia's invasion of the country, and how that's exacerbating the global food crisis. We've been joined by uh, Bodan Homiak, an agricultural consultant based in Kyiv in Ukraine. Thank you so much for joining us, Bodan. Thank you. Yeah. We would like to hear from you. What are your concerns about the food crisis that the war in Ukraine might cause? What questions about how the war in Ukraine is impacting food production do you have? You can give us a call at 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. You can get in touch, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum, or you can email your questions to forum at KQED. Org. We'll get to some of your comments and calls after the break, talking food shortages as well as food waste and prices. We're joined by Joseph Glauber, Senior Research Fellow at the International Food Policy Research Institute and former Chief Economist of the U.S. Department of Agriculture, as well as Scott Reynolds Nelson, Professor of History, University of Georgia, and author of Oceans of Grain, How American Wheat remade the world. We'll also have Amanda Little for a few more minutes. She's a professor at the Vanderbilt University and the author of The Fate of Food, What We'll Eat in a Bigger, Hotter, Smarter World. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Before the break, we heard Bodan Homiak, an agricultural consultant in Ukraine. And I wanted to ask you, Scott Reynolds Nelson, a little bit about, you know, just ask you to reflect on what you heard from him about wheat production there and how it squares with the kind of history of the region as you know it. Yeah, no, it's uh, fascinating. The region is this kind of fantastic region. It has great access to water. It's got very, very deep ports. 
And uh, as he said, uh, as, as Bowdoin said, there's a uh, massive ramping up of grain production from Ukraine. Initially, Ukraine is quite behind Russia. Russia is exporting uh, a, a tremendous amount of wheat. But in the last, around 2010, uh, around the time of the wildfires, when there was a drought in Russia, um, Ukrainian wheat production just skyrocketed. It quadrupled in uh, just a couple of years. And uh, it, U- Ukraine has been in a situation now where it's uh, it got a tremendous advantage over Russia. It's right on the Black Sea, right? It's got a very deep port of Odessa and a couple of uh, uh, s- smaller ports next to it. It's, um, it's, it's got great black paths, these paths that run uh, all the way back to the Middle Ages, if not earlier, um, that, that are tremendous corridors for the delivery of grain. And um, so, so Ukraine has got these, uh, it, it's, it's a kind of, <laughs> we think of it as a kind of Wild West post uh, 1990 in, in part because there are many, many people who are uh, agriculturalists who are interested in producing grain in this region. And that's partly why it's so sweet, so attractive to Russia at this point for the, for the invasion is they uh, see uh, Ukraine not just as you know, their route to the Black Sea, but also a major competitor. And mm. uh, this, this, I think, fuels the, um, the desire to dominate Ukraine and make it uh, Russia's own uh, puppet, really, in, mm. in this. Uh, and so uh, that was true in the 1780s. That was true in the 1680s. Uh, Russia, as a kind of world power, wasn't anything. Uh, without Ukraine for the beginning, and this is um, this is we're seeing history in a way repeat uh, this year from um, those other surges, uh, those other invasions of Ukraine uh, yeah. that we've seen in the past. You know, one of the fascinating things that Bowden said was he kind of mentioned the multicultural nature of this region. How did that develop? That the different you know ethnicities ended up farming in this kind of same place. Right. So Catherine the Great is the person who is really the architect of what we think of as Ukraine. Odessa is her baby. She's the one who kind of uh, identifies the, the the deepest port that's closest to the Black Sea. And she um, encourages people. There's At this point, there's tremendous warfare that's going on in Europe. And she offers uh, land in Ukraine for almost nothing. Uh, to people who will settle there, offers them tax-free status for 50 to 100 years, uh, tells them that they won't have to f- um, fight in Russian wars. And so you see people from Germany, from uh, France, from uh, uh, religious minorities, uh, Mennonites, uh, who come to this region and settle and produce grain. She also uh, promises freedom from taxes in Odessa and um, forces Jews to settle in what's called the Pale of Settlement. And many Jews come to Odessa to engage in this trade. And so Odessa goes from being, you know, it's, it's really nothing in 1760 to being the major grain port in the world uh, by the 1780s and the 1790s. And um, it's, it's really the reason that Napoleon invades Russia is to stop that grain because it's, it's potentially feeds Russia's uh, competitors. Amazing. Um, Amanda, a little before we let you go, so we know you have other things to do, I wanted to ask you a, a, the broadest possible question. Do you think that our global food system, which is you know encountering all these shocks, both the sort of longer term ones and the immediate uh, issue in Ukraine, do you think as that food system is currently constituted, does it properly take into account national security and climate risks that now exist in the world? 
Well, first, I want to thank you, Alexis, for pulling this conversation together because it's exactly what we need to be doing and we need more conversations like this. And I think the Ukraine war is teaching international leaders a lesson they should have learned already. Long-term agricultural strategy must be built into national security plans. We need to start now to invest in more sustainable and regenerative farming practices, uh, climate resilient crops, new growing technologies. We need to be building agile supply chains that can pivot around disruptions. We need to steer money towards organizations like the International Maize and Wheat Improvement Center that are advancing a lot of this research into climate resilience. And food security has to become a central focus of international trade agreements. And it's conversations like this that push all of those things forward. Well, let's let's hope. Thank you very much. Amanda Litta, professor at Vanderbilt University. Amanda is also a columnist at Bloomberg Opinion and author of The Fate of Food, What We'll Eat in a Bigger, Hotter, Smarter World. Thanks for joining us, Amanda Little. Thank you so much, Alexis. Want to add in a caller, uh, Robert from Berkeley. Welcome to the show. Hi, can you hear me okay? Yeah, sure can. Go ahead. So uh, as Ukrainian agriculture comes offline, uh, what's there to replace it? And how does that tax the environment? Uh, I don't know if it impacts rainforests, but um, other arid or humid uh, water areas where the food crops can be grown instead? Um, does it have a negative uh, impact on the environment or does that agriculture just go away and add to the, the suffering uh, that you've been describing? And I have the Jared Diamond book, Collapse, in mind. Um, mm. We have a global source of production which makes uh, what's happened to past civilizations uh, a little bit different now. We have a, a globe to exhaust of its natural environment, but specifically to the conversation today, how does uh, what's happening in the Ukraine yeah. impact the environment? That's a great question. Thank you uh, so much, Robert. Uh, Joseph Glaubert, wanted to ask you about this. I mean, it's kind of two different questions. I mean, how do the world's agricultural producers uh, respond to these changing conditions? And then what environmental impacts could we expect from bringing new areas of food production back in um, to, uh, to you know, regular production? Yeah, no, I, I think we, we said earlier, you know, a lot of the wheat in the world, about 60% of the wheat is fall planted wheat in the Northern Hemisphere. So, it, we really can't look until the fall to see a big response to these high prices where the response is going to have to come in the near term is going to be in spring planted wheats in the U.S., Canada, uh, to a limited degree in the EU. The EU predominantly is a winter wheat producer. Uh, uh, Russia is a, is a sizable wheat, a spring wheat producer, about 20 some odd 20, 30% of their wheat is spring wheat, and then Kazakhstan. So that's not a lot in the Northern Hemisphere. About 20% of the wheat traded in the world, though, comes from the Southern Hemisphere. And so they will be planting uh, in spring and harvesting in, in the fall, uh, our fall, um, in, uh, uh, in Australia and Argentina. So we, we could potentially see some uh, response there. They've had, they're just coming off their harvests, which were quite good. But it's, it, you know, the other other 
wheats are going to be with high prices. People are going to have strong incentives to market what they have. So in recent weeks, you've heard India say that they may be able to export as much as 10 million tons uh, to the world market. Even Brazil, which isn't a traditional uh, wheat producer and in fact imports wheat, they have some exportable supplies. But wheat is grown largely in, in pretty arid arid climates. This isn't something you would uh uh, you know, be growing out of uh, converted rainforest or anything like that. This is coming essentially in the steppes of Russia or the northern plains of the U.S. or, you know, fairly arid areas in um, uh, uh, Argentina or Australia. And actually, that is is an issue because we're talking about uh, areas that have very high low highly variable rainfall. So we hope that we'll get good crops that are planted. We hope we see some response, but it's gonna take a while to build, uh, presuming that, that this war is continues and that disrupts uh, grain exports, it's gonna take a while to build back supplies. Yeah. Let's uh, bring in another caller, uh, Mary in San Francisco. Welcome to the show. Oh, hi. Thank you for taking me. Um, so I'll make my question brief. So my, my question is really how how um, transparent has our government been? Because the war just started a month ago. We've seen gas prices go up a dollar, you know, up to a dollar fifty in California, um, where in the where it was said that uh, even on your shows, five to 10 percent of our oil is coming from Russia. So how much do we actually trade with Russia? And uh, as far as how that affects our food, um, it makes me wonder, you know, uh, is big oil and big ag gouging us? Um, because, again, uh, wheat coming from Ukraine, I don't think I've ever heard that we um, export a bunch of wheat from Ukraine. Right, right. So how is this really, where is this really coming from? Yeah, thank you for that, Mary. Um, you know, Scott Reynolds-Nelson, um, you have looked at the interrelationship uh, between wheat markets. I mean, your book subtitle is How American Wheat Remade the World. So why then you know, are Ukrainian wheat production having a, an impact around the world? Yeah, well, we're all bound together, right, in this uh, global food system, and we have been for uh, hundreds and hundreds of years, but uh, really from the 1860s and 1870s, uh, Russia and Ukraine on one side, uh, the U.S. on the other have been competitors in the same uh, world, uh, both selling wheat to uh, to the rest of the world. That's changed in the last uh, 20 or 30 years as the U.S. is producing more corn and less wheat, partly because of agricultural subsidies for uh, ethanol and mm -hmm. things like that. Mm -hmm. um, but but um, you know we the this global supply chains that we have are so enormous and so complicated that uh, identifying a single culprit for something like this is very difficult. It's really important to understand that these supply chains, uh, no one <laughs> can tell you where the supply chain begins or where the supply chain ends. So many buyers and sellers connecting these things together. Uh, why in COVID did we have no chickens in the grocery store? Why in COVID did we have no, you know, uh, crunchy grand cereal? Uh, it's uh, uh, the ability to sort of say this caused that is something we can only really do in retrospect. Um, the, my fear is not so much for the United States because the United States probably will in a way benefit uh, from the, um, the, the uh, you know, the cutting off of the Black Sea 
uh, grain trade. So in that sense, farmers will will benefit, but will will be hurt in many many other ways from the loss of uh, this supply chain. That's uh, these many supply chains, in particular fertilizer and the, a lot of the raw materials for fertilizer coming from Ukraine. Um, this this kind of cutting you you can't cut off a limb and um, expect that everything is going to just resolve itself with some invisible hand of the market. Uh, what we're going to see is. Uh, increased inflation, but um, you know, finding a single culprit for it is 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 mm-hmm. going to be difficult. What we are going to see, though, uh, very likely, is um, uh, increase in prices. I'm more concerned about the people who are from the, you know, between the Straits of Gibraltar and the Straits of Hormuz, who are close closest to this wheat. Um, those places in North Africa and the Middle East, but also um, Southeast Asia, they're going to be hurting a lot from this. You know, our food, we seven percent of our household income is spent on food. Uh, 40% of household income in places like uh, mm-hmm. North Africa is spent on food. And that uh, that's where I, I'm expecting to see inflation and and real uh, real hurting. We'll hurt a little bit, but nothing like um, uh, those places. Happen there. Yeah. Joseph Glauber, um wanted to take the sort of the other part of Mary's question, uh, which is kind of about the distributional justice of our food system. Dave, uh, another commenter, has a, a similar point. Uh, Dave writes, there is no wheat shortage. There are corporate farm decisions to maximize profits with corn for $30 a pound aged steaks and $3 bags of corn chips and soybean feed for hogs. Couple that with the endless varieties of processed food that lead to tons of unsold food waste. There is enough food, just not the will to give up the first world way of life we expect. The next 100 to 200 years will change this dynamic. And, you know, the, the core of that question is, is there enough food to go around and we just can't get it? to the places that need it, like the places in North Africa uh, that uh, Scott was just talking about? Yeah, no, I, I think I would say, yes, there's enough food. I mean, we're going to draw down inventories uh, because of, of what's going on right now in, in Ukraine, because unfortunately they aren't able to supply the world. And they're a big, they are a big supplier, along with Russia, and, and understand that Russia's exports uh are, have declined a bit as well in, the, in this because just because the Black Sea has been essentially shut down for a lot of commercial trade, um, but you know the world the world's not going to run out of wheat, um, but the prices are going to be really high, and we're seeing prices about twenty percent higher right now than what they were a month ago. And again, at a month ago, they were at near record levels. So no, I think that 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 you know. We're not going to run out of wheat. It is going to be at a higher price. How much of that gets passed on in terms of inflation? You know, you have to remember that in a loaf of bread, about 5% of the value of the loaf of bread is the actual wheat itself. The rest is processing and labor and energy that goes into milling the wheat, making the bread, packaging it, getting it on a, sh- a grocery shelf. So you can imagine even a 100% increase in the price of wheat essentially translates into a 5% increase in the price of bread. And frankly, if you're looking at the inflation rates, which are right now food inflation is the highest levels we've seen since 1981, That's those numbers, again, are prior to the invasion, a Russian invasion of Ukraine. But Wheat prices are in that five to ten percent are the wheat product prices. So if you're looking at bread and biscuits and that sort of thing, they're they were about five to ten percent above what they were a year ago. So, you know, uh, consumers are going to pay higher. I agree exactly with what Scott said. The 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 immediate concerns are in those countries that um, are real 
you know, big importers of wheat and big importers of wheat from the Black Sea. You take a country like Yemen, which imports almost 100% of their wheat, they consume uh, almost 35, 40% of the calories that they consume come from wheat. They are going to be in need of a lot of humanitarian assistance because they just don't have the incomes in, the, in those countries to be able to afford wheat. Countries like Egypt, which are again, same, same boat, they at least are a more of a middle income country. What you will see there is the governments will be providing a lot of uh, consumer subsidies to keep the price of bread down. Because if, if nothing else, the lessons of Arab Spring were don't have uh, big hikes in food prices because that gets people out in the streets. And so already we're seeing uh, increased food subsidies in Cairo and other places in North Africa. Yeah. If you were still at USDA, what would you be encouraging the government around you to do uh, in order to make things better? Well, I, I do think uh, I'll, I'll lead with, with one, uh, and that is, uh, I think uh, there's a responsibility for the U.S. and other countries to provide humanitarian support. I think it was mentioned, uh, maybe it was Amanda who said this, or Beth, I forget, uh, talked about the World Food Program and the fact that they're having to go out and, and, and now buy wheat at much, much higher prices than they had before. And they also supply things like wheat flour and other things, but they're all facing big price hikes. And th so they're going to need uh, more assistance. I think the, um, the one thing that the U.S. can do and, and does do is be very transparent about their, their price act. Um, uh, their forecasts, their wheat forecasts, their their information on exports. Um, we talked about uh, Scott. We talked a little about the uh, Russia back in the early '70s importing all this wheat and really taking the world by surprise. One of the outcomes of that was the fact that um, uh, Congress passed a law that requires importers and or exporters to. Um, report daily sales of mm. any large sales. And so that's really important. And the fact that USDA was also required has uh, put in place a forecasting outfit to put out public forecasts. Let's see here. Thank you so much. We've been talking about how the war in Ukraine is exacerbating the global food crisis with Joseph Glauber, former chief economist of the U.S. Department of Agriculture, and Scott Reynolds-Nelson, professor of history at the University of Georgia. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Ariana Prail. Funds for the production of Forum are provided by the members of KQED Public Radio, the Germanicos Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary.
Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? The Snapchat Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.